0: If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to 2 Chronicles? 2 Chronicles 33, and before we hear from God's Word, I want you to think of some events or circumstances where you could actually say the whole world changed. And certainly as we look through maybe an American lens there, we can go ways back into history and say, Lincoln's assassination. We could go back to like World War II, bombing of Pearl Harbor, things that like, really did seem to change the world. We could say when a man was put on the moon, when we say September 11th, or I think we'll look back decades from now and go these few years, however long or short they are, when we had to deal with the global pandemic, we'll we'll look back and go the world changed. And so there are things that actually changed the world, but there are many things also that change your world individually. So not so much that everybody in the world knows about it, but your world changes significantly. So that could mean that, could mean that you have a, a move or an accident or a proposal or a decision or a call. And any, any one of those things in the right circumstances actually could change the rest of your days here on earth. I I say that because the passage we are looking at today is where a life is dramatically changed. So there's like this hinge point that we're going to see in 2 Chronicles 33, and I want us to listen for that moment when things change. So the character that we're looking at is Manasseh, he's Hezekiah's son. We looked at him last week, we're transported into time. to 600 BC. Around that time, we're going to hear an event that changed things dramatically. So I'm going to ask Jamie Casalca to come read. She's going to begin reading in verse 1 of Second Chronicles 33 and read to verse 13.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals, and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers If only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God.
0: Thank you, Jamie, for reading. Did you hear that moment when pride turned into humility, when Manasseh says in the Bible, he humbled himself greatly before the Lord and things changed. We're going to live in Manasseh's world for a little bit. We're going to go kind of before that moment, We're going to look at that moment and then what happened after. As we're introduced to Manasseh, what may stun you? I mean, the first, at least 10 verses there of Manasseh's life that Jamie read. You just see the wickedness that results from Manasseh's pride. I don't know where it went, like where it got off track with Manasseh. It says that he started ruling when he was 12 and ruled for 55 years. But at some point in time... I don't know whether it's one point in time or a gradual, like, decline, but at some point, Manasseh's heart goes so far away from God, and he is very wicked. At some point in time, I want us to look and kind of focus on that pride piece of things, because at some point, he got so proud that he thought he controlled everything. At some point, he got so proud he thought he controlled everything. Where do I see that? Well, he... He assumes he has the powers of life and death that are in his hands. I say that because in verse 6, it tells us that he offered his sons in the fire like a ritual pagan sacrifice. So he is literally controlling the life and death of his family members. And in a wicked ritual, he takes their life. I say that also because uh, his pride in thinking he controls everything because the parallel passage in 2nd Kings 21 says this about Manasseh More, moreover he shed much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another pride so much so to the degree that he thinks he has control over life and death this isn't some a clumsy politician that has, you know, sorry policies that he can't, you know, really get anything moving. This is more like a brutal dictator. We would be right in reading that name and think of Pol Pot or Saddam Hussein or Chavez. I mean, we would, we would do well to think of this not as just like he had his flaws, but we would, we would do well to recognize this is a brutal evil person. Not only did he think he had control over life and death and was glad to exercise that authority but scripture also says that he acted as if he could determine his own identity despite the fact that he is in the long line of kings like David and Solomon, he turns his back on them. Despite the fact that God had spoken to Moses and given laws and statutes, rules, and to govern God's people, he turns his back, creates his own identity, won't even walk in the ways of his father, but turns his back on those and basically is saying to Hezekiah, to David, to Solomon, to Moses, I will not, I will not take my identity from you. I will create my own. I am that much in charge. I control everything, even who I choose to be. You see the pride of Manasseh. He is so proud also that he determined, like he could obtain guidance on his own terms. If he want to know what he should do, could do, he makes it up. He's not going to hear God's voice. We see that even in verse 5. It says that he consulted like the hosts of heaven. In other words, the stars... He looks to the stars because when you do that, you actually move what is moral, what God has said, what is right, what is wrong, and you move it to very, very impersonal categories. So I can, I can play the, like, look at the stars game and determine it's luck or fate or the fault in our star. I mean, we can, we can play those games and go like, we're really, it's destiny, and that's just the, the way it all goes. And there's something about him looking there that, that makes him feel like he can bypass God and make it all impersonal. He actually, in verse six, he goes to the depths that it doesn't say about many kings. He says he consults with uh, mediums and fortune tellers, necromancers. He's like trying to get in touch with the dead. Why would you do that? I, I think actually the point here is he is, he wants all the power and guidance from God. He just doesn't want God. If he can accumulate all the, all the wisdom that he wants, and it be on his own terms without a relationship with God, he signs up like that's what he wants. And he'll determine what he does with it. This is Manasseh. Manasseh is also so proud that he thought he answered to no one. He thought he answered to no one. And I say that because in verse 3, he decides he wants to build, rebuild the high places if he wants to put up a statue to Baal, who's to stop him? He'll do what he wants. Verse 4, it says he even builds altars, not for the worship of the Lord, but he builds altars in the house of the Lord. almost seems like he's just defying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of David and Solomon, the God of his father, Hezekiah. He's defying him, saying, I know my dad rebuilt this but I'll put an altar wherever I want to and no one's going to tell me otherwise. Do You see how he thought he answered to no one. He says in, it says in verse 7 in the carved image of the idol that he had made he chose to set in the house of God. And almost it's just like how, how brash this is as scripture records this is, this is the house of God of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son in this house I'm going to put my name. It's almost as if Manasseh is saying no, no not your name. I'm going to put what I want to here. And I don't care about your name. As if he answered to no one. It says in verse 9, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. I think Manasseh understood the history. God drove out the inhabitants of that region because of their wicked practices. And he brings them all back. says, watch me bring them all back. And no one will do anything about it. I do have to wonder, I do have to wonder, he had a 55-year reign, that almost makes you invincible. That almost creates such a a culture of intimidation and fear. Do you think people tried to, like, change the direction? I'm guessing they did. I'm guessing you would have no time for it. There There are a few times in Scripture where you just, I don't know, it's like the curtains pull back and you see evil in all its fullness. I think this is one of those. I mean, if I try to empathize, try to live in that culture, I wonder what it's like to bring, to bring children into the world where that's the official policies of the king. Like that, that's grieving. Like you know it's going to be hard to bring children into that kind of environment and that kind of world. I mean, does anybody walk by and look at a temple and go, I remember what Hezekiah, your dad did, and now look what you've done. Do you know how much abuse happens when, like, there's just no restraint? So we get a picture here. And if you've been in churches much, I mean, if you've heard messages much, you kind of probably have an idea and you go, I, I'm tracking where this is going. You're going to make comparisons between where Manasseh is and where we might be. And Are you going to try to compare me? I mean, my defenses go up. Are you going to try to compare me with this wicked king that we've just read is like the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst? It's very tempting when I read, I'll be honest, it's very tempting when I read a a passage like this for me to like pull out the, this could never be me card. Like, I just want to play that. That seems like the right play for me because I go, I mean, seriously, I don't think this could ever be me. I'm I have no temptation to stop by a fortune teller on my way home after church today. And I'm guessing not many of you do. Child sacrifices. I mean, we, we, we know these are, these are things that it'd be very easy for us to write that off and go, what a, what a wicked time. And, and we keep reading. But I do want to stop for just a moment. Granted, you're not, you're not King Manasseh. Granted, you're going to hit restraints that he did not hit because he was king. He was in charge. I mean that's I'm, I'm grateful for laws and, and government that hold some of those impulses in check. But with all seriousness, I want to push in and say I do think this could apply to all of us, even those that would self-describe as Christians in the room. I think this could apply to all of us. Why? Why do I say that? Well, I say it for a couple reasons. One is, one is that there are seeds of pride in all of us. There are seeds. I'm not saying like the full demonstration of it all, but I think we'd be fools to not appreciate there are seeds of pride. You know, pride has a lot of on-ramps. Like you can, you can start being proud in a lot of different circumstances, a lot of different situations. It starts places, it often starts small, it festers. Egomaniacs and control freaks, they're not born in a day. It just, it just slowly, I mean, it, it starts to take time. And over time, it, sometimes it's just kind of a logical progression. So can I just like put this in our, in our laps to think about today and ask some questions. Pulling from Manasseh, am I so proud? Probably first person singular is the way we wanna do this. Am I so proud that I think I control everything or maybe modify that slightly? or at least I should be able to control everything. Everything should go my way. Everyone should look out for me, that's their job. I'm not saying you you reach that like fully, but is there some impulse where you go, could people look out for me at time or time? I mean, there's some impulse there. Question for you. Have you ever been around a controlling person? I mean, I, no nudges or anything like that. We don't have to do that right now. But have you been around that person? You, you know what I'm talking about then. You know the prompts, the suggestions. You know the ways in which it's almost a passive-aggressive way uh, in which someone... It's hard to put your finger on exactly what they do, but they seem to like have everything or will, will die trying everything under their thumb. The question is, do I, am I that person Because I could ask you another question, is that person that's very controlling that you just identified, is that person a real blessing in your life, bringing tons of joy? Or does often that become something you you feel like you have to give your life to manage and try to move around gently so it just doesn't all fall apart. Is it possible that, oh, maybe a couple of us will go to a Thanksgiving environment that this is going to be the issue, either you want to control things and it's just not going to happen or someone wants to control you and it's not going to happen. Only hypothetically speaking here, right? Maybe in-laws, siblings, or, I mean only hypothetically speaking, these are the kinds of things that do reveal something about us, They're like I think I should at least be in control of some things. Where does that lead to? What does that begin to look like in full bloom? Or am I so proud, another question, like, am I so proud that I think I can get guidance on my terms? I mean, we're we're tempted to think that. I mean, every song, I feel like every movie that seems to be, like, hit our culture seems to highlight, no, you can totally do whatever you want, and you just do it all on your own terms. You just look within And of course, you'll self-correct as needed, but you just keep looking within, and and then I can find an array of podcasts and self-help books and gurus that are going to tell me, Curtis, you just need to pick and choose and cater to what you already think is right, and I'll find those voices and go, yep, see, I knew I was right, and I knew everybody else was wrong. I mean, we are fed that stuff. We are fed that stuff in large doses. And we begin to think, I'll determine what I want to do and who I want to listen to. In here is the real truth. The only thing I can trust is my heart, so I'm going to follow my heart. And the only thing I can do is I, need, I just need to love myself more. And I need to trust myself more. And every answer I'm ever going to find is right here inside of me. I'm going to trust my feelings, and I'm not going to let any, any, anyone else change how I feel. Because my feelings are just 100% determinative of what is right. I mean, this is, again, I exaggerate. But there's a version of that that feels, man, that feels like really good for a while. And can easily, if I'm not careful, can easily govern a ton of things in my life. I may not be at mile marker 350 on that road, but I may be at mile marker 10, 15 going, yeah, it seems right to me. I don't know why I should have to listen to. Is it possible that I'm so proud that I think I answer to no one? Is it just possible I think, like, no one can tell me what to do? I make up my mind that I'm right. Maybe in some twisted way, I even think God is mainly there to validate my decisions. And on off the, the off chance I can't control the universe, he better be at my disposal to help, or what good is he? I mean, I, I, I'm not saying anybody, like, formally writes that down as their life code. I'm saying a lot of us operate that way. And so, and so when I think I answer to no one, I I have a hard time accepting that anybody would label me a sinner. I mean, surely, who is anybody to label me that if I don't answer to anybody? Do I ever really think I deserve that label? And so I determine I will never change. And, and... I will also label myself as a victim so I never will have to answer to anyone. And I will also cut out all the toxic people in my life. I'll label them as toxic so that I can arbitrarily go, I don't have to listen to you, I'm done. And no one's gonna tell me, like love my neighbor, no one's gonna tell me to do that. Deny myself, why would I wanna do that? No one's gonna tell me that. Forgive my enemy, I'll live how I want and everyone else can just deal with it. I'm, again, I'm not saying... You're all the way down in that. I mean, you, if I lived that way, 100%, it would be miserable to live with any of us like that. But I am saying, aren't there seeds? I mean, I I do believe there are seeds in that. Little seeds that grow into big, ugly things. And before I jump on a high horse and go, you see all, all these bad things in the world. And you look at just how bad the world's gotten these days. And I, I feel like I could go there pretty easily and actually make a pretty compelling case for the world has gotten pretty bad. I don't know. It's always been this way. I'm guessing it has. Nothing new under the sun, but it would be very easy for me to take that like high, high horse position of like, look at how the world's all messed up. But, you know, sometimes pride can be, sometimes pride can be covered. Sometimes pride comes with a religious costume. It struck me, I mean, even this morning, it, it just seemed so real to me this morning, recognizing how long I've been a Christian. How long I prayed, how long words like God and faith and love and salvation have been part of my vocabulary. How easy it would be. The longer I'm a Christian, I, I don't know, it's almost like it dawned on me, the more easily I could use spirituality, Christianity. It's almost like covering a costume for what deeply is, is pride. So I could take, listen, I could take the rules in Scripture that I want to emphasize, downplay the ones that I don't want to emphasize, because I don't really do those. I could take the ones that I, I follow pretty well, and, and I could take those and emphasize those, and I could depersonalize any sense of the presence of God. I am mean, willing could still sing the songs, but I could kind of depersonalize, put God at a, a little bit of a distance. And I, or I could just use him as a club to belittle and, and harm others and only exalt myself. I say that's possible because this is exactly what Jesus encountered. And I just think we need to realize it. It, it should like, be very, very sobering to us that it wasn't really in the form of a Roman dictator all the time that Jesus encountered pride. But if we put it in modern day terms, it was Bible teachers. It it was seminary professors. It it was pastors. I mean, those were the people where Jesus encountered the most pushback, the most pride. People so proud. You remember this, right? People so proud that they thought they could control everything. They could control the Sabbath and what an individual would or wouldn't do on the Sabbath, even for someone's good. Someone that thought they could control miracles. How dare you do a miracle? Like, I'm in control here. We don't do that. I mean, these were the people that constantly were pushing back against Jesus. People so proud that they determined who's going to be forgiven and who's not. People who will receive mercy and people who won't. People who are righteous and people, they thought they were the determiners. Oh my goodness, if they thought that, is there not some chance that that could grow in my heart? The longer I'm a Christian, some form, some ugly form of that, could that be lurking there? I mean, again, Jesus encountered people so proud that they thought they got, they had such confidence in their their understanding of God's guidance that when the Son of God showed up in person and spoke, you know what they said? I read it this week again. They said, you're demon-possessed. You're a liar. We know where other people come. We don't know where you come from. You have nothing. We don't need your words. We don't need the Spirit of God. We've figured it out. And so you need to be quiet. Imagine the Son of God being told that. These were people so proud, they thought functionally they answered to no one. So much so that they hang. God in flesh, they hang him on a cross and think they've done the world a favor. And do they go back and, like, what's for dinner? Got rid of that problem. Now Jerusalem can settle down. It's sobering. It's sobering that we could be so steeped in religious practices and words, and we could find a few Bible verses at our disposal, sprinkle them in, twist them a little bit, and still be so saturated with pride and arrogance. I hope that has our attention. I feel like if we don't, I know this is like a strong, strong message from God's word, but I, I do wonder if we don't see this in all of its ugliness, if we don't catch pride, if, if we don't at least glance in the mirror and check, and we think, I oh, know no problem there. But if we don't at least check and go, what's going on? we miss a big portion of the intent of this passage. So so let's check. I mean, are we are we proud? Are we Manasseh? Our own little version of that. The good news about this, because so far all I've got, all I've given you is bad news. <laughs> the good news is that God intervened. Of course He does. The good news is that He looks at people who are broken, alienated, disturbed, and wrong. And there's moments where he says, Enough's enough. You see it in verse 10. He doesn't just have people guess, he tells them what's wrong. He speaks. We'd all be better if we just responded, Whatever you say, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong. But notice verse 10. He speaks. I mean, this is God's grace. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. They didn't pay any attention. This is God's grace speaking, and they don't pay attention. And we don't either. I mean, God might be speaking now, but yeah, there's this week and all of its plans. And then there are scores you've got to catch up on. And then there's celebrity gossip that will be really important 20 years from now. And there's a social media feed that you have to make sure you catch what everybody in the world's doing. And how many, I mean, we can just fill in the blank and we can keep going and going. How much of that is, like, if we were writing it here, the Lord spoke and we did not pay attention. We were were so preoccupied with a million things. It's like, yeah, I'll listen, but it's on a priority level. Like, it's not a 10, it may be a one and a half. I'll get to it when I get to it. It's God's grace that he speaks. But he doesn't just speak in the story, he also acts This is God who orchestrates history, brings even to a point of distress. Look at 2 Chronicles 33 verse 11. So following that they paid no attention, therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Manasseh feels pain. I love the stories of Jesus where he brings healing and restoration and calm. But there are also these other stories of Jesus where he brings confusion and Like, people don't know what to do with his authority and his love. And, like, it sends them into turmoil. It doesn't always feel like grace 100% of the time, even when it is. When God acts, when stuff is stirred up, that goes a couple different ways. I mean, Manasseh could have, we certainly have records in Scripture of people that when God stirred, when God wrecked their life, when they were in distress, when God finally said enough is enough, they actually got bitter and hardened and said, I will not turn to you. It could have gone that way. Or he certainly could have, like, done all that it is to, like, make something happen. There could have been only bitterness and no humility. But somewhere along the line, Manasseh, we're not even given a lot of details, but he had a change in heart. Do you see that in verse 12 and 13? When he was in distress, this is what he did. He entreated the favor of the Lord, his God. And it says he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved. Moved by his entreaty, heard his plea, and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God, If you're anything like me, you're a skeptic. You feel like, ah, I mean, what did it really mean it? I mean, isn't this one where like you get pulled over by a friendly officer who asks, you know how fast you were going? You go, like the tears come out and oh, I was just delivering food to someone who's sick and I promise I'll never do it again. And okay, it's just a warning this time. And you go, okay. I can just guarantee with the God of all knowledge, that's not what's going on here. God knows Manasseh's heart and God writes over this story, he humbled himself greatly. There was a real turn. This is good news to those of us who repeatedly make messes. Whatever we hear, we don't hear him bargaining. We don't hear him bargaining because humble people don't bargain. They don't have anything to bargain with. We don't see him like demanding, well, I'll turn, but you've got to guarantee that's because that's because we're not in charge. And when you're not in charge, you can't manipulate. I don't hear any of that from Manasseh. I don't hear him playing the victim card because humble people recognize their faults. They actually see what they've unleashed. And they recognize people were hurt because of their actions. So we have Manasseh, humble, broken, needing God. Can I expand it just a little bit further and say we don't only have Manasseh, humble, broken, needing God. There are a lot of us in this room that come to God in the same way, humbled and broken. Today isn't about God beating you up or beating you down. Today we hear the word from the Lord that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's weird when When people humble themselves in scripture it's like stories get uncomfortable this one does i mean how does manasseh not experience all the torment and judgment he should have like why does he get a why does he get grace there are all these situations in the bible that do make us feel uncomfortable because it's like you know there's a moral pharisee in the bible who is proud and so he tries to trap jesus and i And yet there's also this Zacchaeus who has a track record of financial oppression and he humbles himself and walks away saved. Who deserved that? How does this work? I think of of priests in their pride, they turn an assembly into a mob that demands Jesus be crucified. And yet there is a man who actually crucifies Jesus, oversees the whole thing, and in his humility, he says, truly, this is the son of God. It's like the one you expect to do right doesn't. The one you expect to just keep walking in a path of antagonizing God changes. I think of even on the cross, the religious people today, the in their pride, they mock Jesus. You saved others. And then you see a thief on the cross who also mocked, but then something happens in his heart, recognizes this man should never be mocked, and that thief, just moments before his death, cries out to the Lord, after having mocked him at his worst hour, and hears, truly, you will be with me in paradise. I mean, it is just, it gets uncomfortable. Two times Luke records Jesus saying the exact same words, and Jesus said it a lot, so we must need to hear it. Luke 14, 11, Luke 18, 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humble. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humbling yourself, you have that ugly track record of comparing yourself to others and feeling so much better about yourself. Humble yourself and lay that down. See the log in someone else's eye, Actually, why don't you just deal with specs and logs and like, why don't you just recognize you're the chief of sinners like Paul called it? Humble yourself. You feel the need to be always in control. Lay that down, see what God, see who God is and how much he controls. I wonder, I wonder what it would do if you as a daughter or son or you as a mother or father, or you as a friend, Decided you were going to lay that desire for control down. I wonder how much good would come out of those things. You want to only and always feel good about yourself. I I call you to humble yourself and lay that down. See the truth about who you really are. Realize who you're accountable to. That's not going to make you wallow in self-pity. But you can pray and confess and repent. Humbling yourself changes things. I will say God brings distress sometimes and that just, like, we have no other choice. We either will humble ourselves or not, but there's so many other ways we can humble ourselves. I think when I go to the ocean or look at the Rocky Mountains, I'm, that's a pretty humbling experience. You look at the beauty of God's creation and you think, I didn't deserve this view. I didn't deserve the ability to take this in. You have someone give you a gift and you know you didn't deserve it. And they just gave it to you because they care, because they love you. Or you have someone confide in you. You walk away from a conversation where you go, they didn't have to open their heart to me and be that vulnerable. But it humbles you. You're like, who am I to deserve that? But thank you for sharing that. Or someone is patient with your mistakes. Despite you being you, they love you. And it's humbling. But there is the greatest humbling of all. The greatest humbling of all means that you come to the realization that there is one who is equal with God the Father and had n- had really no cause to humble himself could have stayed exalted being praised in heaven for eternity yet scripture records these words he humbled himself and became obedient to death even to the point of death on a cross and is humbling beyond measure to know that was for you. That was for you. And it's not even as if he just wanted to spare your soul. But how humbling is it that it goes far beyond that? He actually doesn't just spare your soul, but in humbling himself, going to the cross, he makes you his friend, not an enemy. How humbling is it that he, he gives you a mission and a life's purpose And so you actually, with days that he gives you, are able to use your time to give him glory, to make him look bigger. You're able to use your time to make others' lives better. What an amazing, humbling privilege. This is humbling. The question you ask is like, who are we? Who am I? What could I have ever done to earn that? What could I ever done to deserve that? That's why 1 Peter 5, we just need to hear it loud and clear, and this is how we'll close today. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, at the proper of time, at the proper time he may exalt you, the stakes this high. Really wise to evaluate here. We're not playing games. It's really wise to turn and repent and humble. If God is speaking to you, it's really wise to open your hands and receive grace instead of what you deserve, instead of what I've earned. So can we do that? Can we turn to the Lord right now? Father, you know how this passage needs to do work in our hearts. You know where our pride needs to be devastated, where we're got a religious costume on where we sing the songs and go through the motions But you know where we can be a jerk. You know where we can be controlling. You know where we don't like our our world altered in any way. You know where we think we always know what's right and best. And so, Lord, we're asking you to do an uncomfortable work. We don't want to be the people that heard you speak and we paid no attention. So, Father, make our church, make all of us here humbled before you. And we're grateful that we have a model if you showed mercy on Manasseh. You will show mercy on Curtis. You will show mercy on Ogletown. You resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Pour out your grace. As we're reminded of your love, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.